Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Matthias Fueling. I will be the interview for this episode, the interviewer for this episode. And today I am interviewing Agathe Demaray, the author of Backfire: How Sanctions Reshape the World Against US Interests, and she is also a global forecasting director of the Economist Intelligence Unit. Agathe, uh Good or good morning, my time. Good afternoon, your time. Well, good afternoon and hello, everyone. I'm very, very happy to be here with you all today. Yeah, and I'm very excited because I love this book. I thought it was extremely clear. It's also maybe the most timely book that I've ever read. Um, but before we dive into the book, uh, I get how about you just tell me about yourself? You have a really fascinating career, and how did your career lead you to writing this book? Well, I think that's a very good question because it's been a long process in the making. Actually, a lot of people ask me when I started to work on the book. And I would say overall that the idea of the book germinated from 2014. So originally I was working in investment banking and I was actually working in Russia, but then I joined the French treasury and I was posted in Moscow covering economic and financial topics for Russia, Ukraine and Central Asia. And then 2014, February 2014, to be precise, happened. And Russia annexed Crimea, started to back separatist troubles in the Donbass region. And from one day to another, as I actually discuss in the intro of the book, I became a sanctions person working on Russia sanctions from Moscow. Of course, we were uh, in direct communication with Paris, with other European capitals, with Washington. But that was my intro to sanctions. And already at the time, we would see European companies telling us that they could feel the ripple effects of sanctions that weren't supposed to have any impact on them, but still they had some impact on them. So That was my first thought. Hmm, that's interesting. Sanctions have ripple effects. And then still for French Treasury, I moved to the Middle East. I was posted in Beirut and I was covering, well, the entire region, Egypt, the Levant, Iran, Iraq, the Gulf, including Iran. Um, And that was really during the negotiations for a nuclear deal, including Syria also, which is a very much sanctioned country. And here again, I could see some ripple effects from sanctions in my conversations with Syrian friends, for instance. And also after the nuclear deal was concluded, some of the conversations that I had with European companies again was that they they weren't too keen to go back to the Iranian market because they were worried that the US would exit the nuclear deal. So again, I had some thoughts about the ripple effects of sanctions. And then fast forward to now, I'm the Global Forecasting Director at the Economist Intelligence Unit based in London. And I think over the past years, we've seen again ripple effects from US sanctions on the relationships between the US and the EU, for instance. There was the Nord Stream 2 saga, I call it a saga in the book, um, that fueled actually transatlantic tensions. And so that's how everything came together. And in November 2019, so exactly three years ago, because we're recording on in November 2022, and the book is now out. I pitched the idea. Columbia University Press liked it. I got to work. I wrote the book. Then 
everything was ready, but February 24th happened. Russia invaded Ukraine, so I updated the book earlier this year, and now it's out. But yeah, in a nutshell, that's how I came to understand um, that sanctions have global ripple effects, and hopefully this is what I'm trying to tell in the book. Wow. So you're, you've been at basically the center of some of the more momentous geopolitical developments of the past decade. Um, really quite remarkable. And I think this book I find fascinating because you're able then from your career experience and from, I think, as you mentioned in the book, many um, interviews with people involved with sanctions on the ground and with business people, people involved in finance, of how these events are totally reshaping the global economy, but also how there is this kind of, you know, as an American, how should I put it? There's also this kind of, you know, American sort of failure to learn from from various, you know, um, failures or various, you know, um, endeavors. So if you could put in like one or two sentences, what is the major argument of the book? What are you really trying to get across with it? So I'd say the major argument of the book is actually an analogy that I don't make in the book. But sanctions are like antibiotics. Nobody is saying that antibiotics are not important or crucial, but one needs to use them with care because otherwise you develop antibiotics resistance. And it's exactly the same with sanctions. They are very important, but they come with global ripple effects that the US has to take into account to avoid sanctions resistance because that would be a very dangerous development for US diplomacy. Yeah, great. So let's go ahead and dive into the book because your narrative starts sort of chronologically, I think more in the 80s, in the 90s, when the U.S. is sort of, I guess we could say, is at kind of the height of, of a sort of, you know, post-Cold War triumphalism. And I'm wondering, how did the U.S. get so addicted to sanctions? How did sanctions become the go-to method for America to sort of use its power without resorting to military force? So it's exactly the way you put it. And I think that this is the reason why sanctions are so popular these days. It's because they really fill in the void between, on the one hand, empty diplomatic declarations, which are really not going to impress anyone, especially someone like Vladimir Putin, uh, if we talk about recent events. And on the other hand of the diplomatic spectrum, military intervention, which is obviously deadly and comes with huge consequences. And sanctions really fill in the gap. And I think that this is why they have been so popular. But it hasn't always been the case, actually. If you take a look at the data, sanctions have really become popular over the past two decades. Previously, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, well, you had some sanctions, but it was mostly trade embargoes. So, for instance, against Cuba, of course, as I discussed in the book, or against North Korea. But the invention of sanctions, of modern sanctions, I actually discussed. It's a very interesting story. And it happened with North Korea. And it was the invention of financial sanctions. And the U.S. really had a ha moment when the U.S. realized that if you target financial ties between a country and the rest of the world, you can prompt some financial isolation of this country and really, really complicate the financing of its economy. And this is exactly what happened with uh, North Korea. Shortly after 9-11, actually, the US was much more worried about the war on terror. But during the war on terror, there was this focus on the financing of terror groups. And those people who were working on sanctions had a similar reasoning. They were working on North Korea, and they actually noticed that there was a bank, a single bank called Banco Delta Asia, uh, based in Macau, that was 
the sole financial conduit between North Korea on the one hand and the rest of the world on the other hand. And North Korea was processing illicit transactions like money laundering um, and tons of different things through this bank. And the US had a very good idea and it was something completely new and unexpected. The US didn't have jurisdiction to impose sanctions on Banco Delta Asia, but it told the bank, you can either stop doing business with North Korea or we will cut your access to Western financial channels and the US dollar. Take your pick. Banco Delta Asia denied that it was doing anything wrong. So the US cut the bank's access to the US dollar. And that was really the invention of financial sanctions. So it, it was something completely new. Um, and then as I discussed in the book, these sanctions were applied and refined against Iran, against Russia, and against Venezuela. But I'm sure that we will come to this bit soon. Yeah, I think in this transit, this sort of this transformation of how sanctions operate, I think is really critical to your argument, but also geopolitically, because it seems that prior to that, sanctions are much more of a a kind of brute mechanism, right? They're a kind of blockade. They're a physical action where you are physically preventing the inflow of goods and services. Ergo, you know, Cuba um, is kind of the classic example of this. Um, and then from there, right, it seems Cuba is kind of the model of this older, more brute mechanism. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, North Korea becomes kind of the, the, the turning point of more sophisticated, but therefore more sort of insidious um, financial sanctions. Because as you point out from the book, it's not just then that that like with a kind of brute blockade, you can prevent the flow of goods and services. But once you start dabbling into the financial system, that has effects across the entire global economy. But particularly in your book, as you point out, it has massive effects on European companies. And I wonder if you could kind of explain this process, because once the U.S. starts saying, oh, no, we're, we're preventing the inflow of dollars, you know, we're monitoring banks. What happens to all these businesses and what happens to all these you know, entities in Europe? How do they react to that? So the short answer to your question is it depends if the US and the EU are in the same boat regarding their diplomatic objectives. So I think here, actually, Iran is a very good example of that. So as I discussed in the book, after North Korea, the US refined its sanctions arsenal with Iran. But Iran was a much trickier target because it's a much bigger target than North Korea. I mean, North Korea is a very small economy. It's a paria on the global economic stage. Iran was a completely different target in the 2010s because the economy is much bigger for Iran. It's a major energy exporter. And the Iranian economy had ties with European countries. That wasn't really the case with the US because there had been sanctions from the US on Tehran for a long time. But there was trade between Iran and the European Union. But at the time, the European Union and the US were, well, on the same boat. And they agreed on the objective, which was to compel Iran to sign a nuclear deal. So what happened at the time is that their use, well, the use of these financial mechanisms um, was really strong and there was transatlantic collaboration to impose sanctions on Iranian banks, to cut Iran's access to SWIFT, which is some sort of a Rolodex of all banks to connect them together so they can process financial transfers. And everything was going well in terms of transatlantic collaboration and European companies and American companies both of them, they couldn't get access to the Iranian market. Then there was a nuclear deal in 2015. And then a few years afterwards, Trump exited the nuclear deal. 
And what happened, and I remember this as a former French Treasury official at the time, is that European companies were really in a very tricky position because of something that is called U.S. secondary sanctions. So there is a lot of confusion about what a U.S. secondary sanction is. A U.S. secondary sanction is essentially the U.S. telling companies around the world, American or foreign, that they need to choose between, on the one hand, the American market, and on the other hand, the market of a sanctioned com country, such as Iran. It's not about telling them they cannot go to Iran. It's about telling them, if you want to remain with us in the U.S., if you want to keep using our currency, the U.S. dollar, then you need to make a choice. And so European companies were in a very difficult position because the EU was still in the nuclear deal, but the US wasn't, and the US was imposing secondary sanctions in Iran on Iran. So they needed to make a choice. And to be clear, they really hated it. I actually discuss in the book the case of Total, which is a French energy giant that had to ditch a multi-billion dollar project um, in Iran because of these US secondary sanctions, because Total just couldn't lose access to the US dollar and the US market. But it places European companies in tricky situations when this happens. And of course, it fuels tensions between both sides of the Atlantic because the EU says, but wait, we don't tell American companies what they're supposed to do. We don't tell you that if you use the euro, you need to comply with European sanctions. That's not the case. The EU doesn't impose secondary sanctions. But still, the US does it. And so that really fuels transatlantic disputes, which in my view are dangerous because they undermine collaboration, diplomatic collaboration between the US and the EU. And that, of course, can only benefit rogue states, such as Russia, of course, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this is a really important point I got from your book is also that kind of this brute method, again, you know, maybe blockades are brutal, but this financial sanction form also has this brute force of just cutting people off from the dollar. And sort of really kind of like America standing up and saying, you know, we're the top dog. We have the global, you know, currency and you can do, you know, you can use different currencies, but you'll never really be able to be successful because our currency is the biggest, it's the baddest, it's the most powerful. Um, but that being the case, what I also found really fascinating in your book is how you lay out that how the U.S. applies sanctions and how the U.S. oversees sanctions is actually incredibly underfunded and understaffed. And is and is really sort of chaotic, and so I'm wondering if you could could walk uh, walk us through how does the U.S. actually in, like manage sanctions because it's it's sort of it's unbelievable to me that like such a massive system around the world that has consequences for hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, and hundreds of millions of people is is just sort of run on like a shoestring budget out of like a closet in D.C. Well, essentially, I would say sanctions have consequences on pretty much everyone around the world. So we're really talking about billions of people. But what you say is very true, and it's part of the story that I try to tell in the book. Sanctions are popular for several reasons. The first reason is they're very, very cheap. You only need a few people to draft them. And I, I talk here from experience. It can happen overnight in small, crowded rooms, dark rooms, uh, and then you have your sanctions. And then they are applied by multinationals and banks around the world. So it's actually a form of externalization of U.S. foreign policy. And this is something that I discuss in the book. Sanctions have really fueled the emergence of compliance departments because the 
implementation of sanctions is down to companies. It's down to banks because we're talking about financial sanctions. So it's up to every bank around the world to make sure that the transactions that they process are complying with US sanctions, European sanctions, Australian sanctions, Canadian sanctions, every sanctions around the world. We're really talking about thousands, tens of thousands of different legislation sets. So it's really tricky. But that's one of the reasons why sanctions are so powerful also, because it's down to companies to impose them. And if they fail to do so, if they breach sanctions, then they're fined. But they're fined in billions of dollars. For instance, I recall the case of BNP Paribas, which is a big French bank, the biggest French bank in the book. And it was fined 8.9 billion US dollars for failing to comply with US sanctions. Um, so it's really something that means that companies are extremely cautious when it comes to sanctions, a phenomenon that fuels what is called overcompliance. That is to say that if a bank sees anywhere in a financial transaction, Iran or Russia or Syria, it will prefer to say, no, sorry, I'm not doing it. Oh, but maybe it's legal. It's for humanitarian. No, no, sorry. I don't want to hear about it. I'm not doing it. The stakes are too high. And so that's, I mean, something that is, in my view, an interesting thing to explore, and I explore it in book. Just to add a few more words about this, because the other reasons why sanctions are so popular, it's also because um, they're so very quick, very cheap, and they tend to boost the approval ratings of people who impose them. So it goes back, actually, to your earlier questions about how sanctions became so popular for US foreign policy. It's cheap, it's quick. It's not implemented by the US, but by companies. It works. I mean, it's powerful. Uh, we can discuss the effectiveness, but it's very powerful. And it doesn't cost the US very much. So obviously, it's a, it's a recipe that something is, well, the US will love it, of course. Yeah. And in reading it, and, and on that, and just to kind of go off that point, I, I really feel like this turn to sanctions in US foreign policy in the 90s, and then particularly financial sanctions, really matches up with kind of like neoliberalism around the world with this idea of it's kind of the privatization of U.S. foreign policy where the U.S. doesn't have to do much, right? It's just, it sort of externalizes the activity onto private companies because the U.S. just says, you know, we have the global currency. So it's up to you, you know, you do what you want, but just know that if you don't follow what we're telling you to do, right, we're going to cut you off. And then as well, right, it also, this, this kind of like downsizing the government, you know, human rights, you know, lack of military force, you know, kind of, it provides, yeah, this, and then, you know, domestic approval ratings, it just provides, a, like you said, a perfect recipe for all of these nodes in American life at the time. But as you go into the book, there are very serious consequences for sanctions, and also oftentimes very serious unintended consequences for sanctions. You know, they're not, I mean, and probably our listeners are aware, you know, sanctions are not a benign form of foreign policy. I mean, think particularly of the examples of Iraq in the 90s and many other cases. And so I'm wondering if you could walk us through some of the examples from your book of how do sanctions go wrong or that maybe not necessarily always go wrong, but they definitely go in the way that policymakers are not intending them to go. So I think that in the book, I tell several examples of this happening. So I'm going to mention only a few. I think that sanctions um, can go wrong because one of their objectives is to impose economic pain on the target country so that its population is going to suffer and its population is going to apply pressure on the government of targeted countries so that it changes 
changes course. So obviously, this is what happened in Iran, for instance, before the conclusion of the nuclear deal. Iran was cut off from SWIFT, the global network of banks that we discussed a few minutes ago, and that prompted an economic recession, inflation shot up, the real, which is the Iranian currency, uh, sank to record low levels. And the Iranian population had a way to show its displeasure with the situation. It elected a reformist for Iranian standards in the presidential election. And Hassan Rouhani, who was the new Iranian president, well, he said, I'm going to sign a deal with Western countries, well, plus China, plus Russia, um, and we will get Western sanctions lifted. So that's a way that sanctions in that case worked. But I think that we need to keep in mind that to work, they impose economic pain on the population of targeted countries. And what that means is that countries can use sanctions as scapegoats, for instance. I actually wrote a piece recently for a journal of democracy explaining this. In a country that is a dictatorship where the media are completely controlled by the government, as is the case, for instance, in Russia these days, and the population doesn't have access to free um, media, well, the government can use sanctions as a scapegoat to explain their own economic mismanagement. This is also what's happening in Venezuela, for instance. Another thing that I discuss in the book is the fact that simply lifting sanctions is usually not enough to cancel their effects because sanctions have deep structural impacts on the economy that they target. And I discuss the case of Iran during the coronavirus pandemic in the book. Um, so for instance, there was this discussion in the US, especially at the time during the COVID pandemic, should sanctions on Iran be lifted to help the Islamic regime um, tackle the current coronavirus pandemic? But I actually argue in the book that the impact of sanctions is so deep, especially on the Iranian economy, because it has been under sanctions for such a long time, that simply lifting sanctions cannot cancel all of their effects. And that is a problem for US diplomacy, because it means that sanctions lifting is not really appealing for targeted countries, because they know that the after effects of sanctions will last for a very long time. So these are some of the examples um, that I discussed in the book. And one more, of course, but I'm sure that we will um, go back to it. One more way that sanctions can go wrong is that they can fuel disputes between allies. So I discuss in the book the case of Nord Stream 2. So essentially, the US applied a lot of sanctions on the pipeline that was due to connect Russia to Germany um, to export Russian gas to Germany. So of course, in hindsight, it wasn't a good idea. And there were a lot of debates across Europe to say whether it was a good idea or not a good idea. Opinions were really torn, but there was a big consensus in Europe, and I think that was missed in the American debate. It was that the US was going too far by telling Europe if and how it could import more Russian gas, because Europe was saying, we're not giving the US any lessons about who you should be importing oil and gas from and how you should do it. So... How do you dare doing that with us? And I think we should remember, and I discussed this story in the book, that some U.S. senators um, actually even threatened to impose sanctions on German stevedores, German port stevedores, who were working in a German port that was due to be the logistical base for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline construction. So that was really one step too far, probably. And I, as, as I discussed in the book, this was 
probably not a great idea because these sanctions dispute, they feel mistrust and they feel resentment between the US and the EU at a time when we need collaboration between the US and the EU precisely to tackle Russia's behavior. Great. And, and I remember from your book, too, you have this very you know clear point that effectiveness of sanctions is also the, the track record is not good um, because, as you point out, sanctions really only work immediately. Right. I think you mentioned that once they're put in place, you really only have a few months, maybe a year at most for sanctions to really do what the U.S. wants them to do, which is usually regime change. And if there is not a regime change within this this very limited amount of time because of the crunch of the sanctions, it means that the government will have adapted to the new situation of the sanctions. And then from there, that is that just creates a new situation. It can be horrible for the people of the country. It can have all kinds of awful ripple effects. But the regime will have withstood the shock of sanctions. And so I, I'm wondering maybe you, if you can kind of discuss some examples of that, of how sanctions end up not actually creating real foreign policy changes. They don't really actually usually produce um, regime change, but what they produce is new structures in the global economy. So essentially, I think that this goes back to the criteria for the effectiveness of sanctions, which I discuss in the book. So to be clear, I lay out a few criteria for sanctions to be as effective as possible. In practice, I don't think that there is any sanctions case that would fit all of these criteria. But what are these criteria? So the first one is, as, I've, as you've said, sanctions, they tend to work fast or never. So for instance, I discuss in the book the case of sanctions that the US applied on Turkey in 2018. Turkey was detaining an American pastor called Andrew Brunson. The US imposed sanctions on Turkey to get Mr. Brunson released. It worked fast. The US lifted sanctions. Everything was good. And this actually tells us something because when we discuss this, it's very clear that the objective of these sanctions was very narrow. It was very, very precise. You release the pastor, we will lift the sanctions. And that's exactly what happened. The problem is, in many cases, US sanctions either have regime change as an objective, and to be clear, that doesn't work, that doesn't tend to work, because dictators have no intention of giving up power. They would be signing their death warrants. Um, and the other problem is that even if it's not stated, well, then sanctions may have very unclear objectives. So for instance, a good example of this these days, because we're discussing the situation in Russia these days with Ukraine, there is no clear view about what it would take for Western sanctions against Russia, the latest that have been imposed, there is no clear view about what it would take for these sanctions to be lifted, which is obviously a problem for the effectiveness of sanctions, because if you're the targeted country, if we put ourselves in the shoes of these dictators, they need to know what they need to do to get sanctions lifted if sanctions are to be useful and good leverage. So I think that's that's another problem. So sanctions work fast or never. Sanctions that work tend to have a narrow objective. Another thing, relatedly, we have discussed this, sanctions tend to work best when they target democracies, which is obviously a problem because in most cases, 
you don't tend to target a democracy. When you have a problem with a democracy, you tend to work it out through diplomacy. So that's another issue. And then um, there are two more factors that I wanted to mention. Sanctions tend to work best when they target a partner, an economic partner, which is also one of the reasons why these sanctions in 2018 worked so well against Turkey, because the US and Turkey obviously have deep economic ties or military partners through NATO. So that, I mean, the sanctions were, they were really a problem for Turkey. But when you're a country that has zero ties with the US, okay, you're cutting our trade and financial ties to the US, but we have none. So, well, (laughs) okay, (laughs) that's not really a problem. And finally, the latest factor is that multilateral sanctions tend to work best. I actually discussed the Libya case uh, in the book, which I thought was very interesting because in the 1980s, the US first imposed sanctions unilaterally against Libya, against the regime of Muammar Gaddafi, which was sponsoring terror and doing many other things. But first, the US went to loan, and it didn't work. And a few years afterwards, when Gaddafi bombed two passenger jets, then there was international consensus that the UN, well, under the aegis of the UN, all countries around the world would impose sanctions against Libya. And these sanctions worked. The unilateral U.S. sanctions failed, but the multilateral sanctions worked, and Gaddafi actually um, promised not to wage terror attacks anymore. He stayed true to his word. Um, There was a dismantlement of, um, well, weapons arsenal in Libya under um, the supervision of the U.N., and so these sanctions worked. But if you take a look at all of these criteria, that's a problem because in many cases, we can think even before sanctions are imposed that they're not going to meet this criteria, which is obviously a bit of a problem. I'm sure we'll go back to the Russia case. I should say here, there's one caveat that I want to mention. I'm not sure this framework can be applied to the latest sanctions against Russia because they're so specific and so massive. Okay, great. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. I'm, I'm thinking maybe then to try and tackle some of the stuff I want to ask you about is, is we can move it into, into the contemporary, much more of the contemporary sphere, particularly the rise of Europe and the rise of China. And kind of the ironies is that in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, you know, a major element of American foreign policy was encouraging economic growth. You know, we're seeing the rise of the European Union as a power. You know, it's, it's sort of dismantling the structures of the Cold War. There's new prosperity in Europe. You know, the relationship with China is mutually beneficial, right? Increased trading ties. It's totally changing the structure of the global economy. But the irony is that at the same time that the U.S. is is promoting, or at least, you know, is is in some ways overseeing this economic growth globally, um, particularly Europe and China, that's undermining the capacity of the U.S. to implement sanctions, because with these two new blocks of Europe and China, increasingly they have their own, you know, foreign policy objectives, but also they increasingly have their own currencies and they have massive global reach. And increasingly, even though, of course, the dollar is still top dog, so to speak, that may not always be the case. The U.S. now has to really think what is the consequence of a sanctions, for example, in our relationship with trade and what is the status of the yuan or the renminbi what is the status of the euro and what happens when you know these two when these multi when these currencies start to you know come to blows essentially and so i'm wondering if we can talk about moving on to other parts of your book where you discuss how increasingly in re- in response to sanctions 
there are developing new sort of almost currency unions or new ways of currency operations to get around the dollar. And that, that ultimately is undermining the global power of the dollar because if people aren't using it, that has no power. So I'm wondering if we can kind of, you kind of discuss how is this process working and what are the ways that like, say, for example, China or, or Europe or even Russia are finding ways around the dollar to try and skirt sanctions? Yeah, so I think that you phrased the question very, very well. So I won't repeat everything that you've said, which is part of the answer to the question. But in a nutshell, the effectiveness and the powerfulness of U.S. sanctions nowadays really rests on U.S. financial supremacy, on the U.S. dollar and on the fact that no bank around the world would be willing to take the risk to be cut off from the U.S. dollar and from American financial channels. That would be a death warrant for these banks. But as we discussed, and it was about 30 minutes ago at the very start of this podcast, Sanctions have become so common, I would argue, that there is resistance against sanctions. And I think that this is to be expected because these days sanctions target tens of thousands of of individuals and companies. The US has around 70 sanctions programs and actually, well, the reach of sanctions is really all across the world in pretty much every country around the world. You would say there, there are sanctions cases and the implementation of US sanctions. And so given this big reach, it is to be expected that countries under sanctions are going to respond and want to find ways to circumvent U.S. sanctions. And I think that this is only natural. And so as I discuss in the book, given sanctions rest on financial channels, these innovations, they take three main forms and they are all in the financial field. So the first way that countries under sanctions are trying to skirt U.S. sanctions is through de-dollarization. So essentially, if you don't use the U.S. dollar at all, it's not a magic bullet, but still it shields you a little bit from the reach of U.S. sanctions. And so there is a trend that I actually discuss in the book. Since 2020, Russia and China, the bilateral trade of these two countries between Moscow and Beijing, it's mostly denominated either in Russian ruble or in Chinese renminbi. And I think that this went unnoticed. And of course, it's not random. <laughs> this was a decision taken by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is also seldom making headlines in Western countries. But it's an organization that unites China and India and Russia and Pakistan and some other countries. So it's it's fairly big. And these countries have made the de-dollarization of their bilateral trade or exchanges a top priority. And it's really not surprising because they're really trying to shield their economies, to vaccinate their economies from sanctions. So de-dollarization, that's the first thing. De-dollarization can take other forms. By the way, for instance, if the reserves of your central bank aren't in US dollar anymore, well, the US cannot freeze them. So that's also of use if you're a sanctioned country. The second tool is alternatives to SWIFT. We've discussed SWIFT a number of times already in this podcast. I'm sure that listeners will have understood that SWIFT is really quite crucial. It's based in Belgium, but the US really has leverage over SWIFT because SWIFT needs to have access to American financial channels and to the US dollar because otherwise SWIFT would be of no use. So if there is US pressure on SWIFT, SWIFT really has to comply. Um, 
And actually, a number of countries, and they are led by China, are developing financial mechanisms that would be alternatives to SWIFT. And China's alternative is called SIPS. So at this point in the conversation, usually experts reply, yes, but SIPS is much, much smaller. Absolutely. In one year, SIPS turnover is equivalent to SWIFT's turnover in three days. So essentially, it's 100 times smaller. But China doesn't really care because 1,300 banks all around the world, all the major banks, including the American ones, are connected to SIPS. And what China really wants is not to have the biggest alternative to SWIFT. It doesn't care. What it wants is to have a viable plan B in case it's disconnected from SWIFT. Then from one day to another, it can shift to SIPS. And of course, Russian banks are all connected to SIPS, including many of those um, that are under sanctions. So that's the second tool. And finally, the third tool, well, it has to do with digital currency. So it's not crypto. This is something that I say every time. It's not crypto. Digital currencies are exactly that. It's a digital thing that is issued by the central bank of a given country. And these currencies are stored on the wallets of the citizens of this country. And actually, that's also an under-noticed trend. But in China, 300 million, maybe 400 million by now, Chinese use a digital currency every day to do their purchases, to exchange money, to pay their bills. Actually, when you take a look at the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics, the only way that people could pay was with a visa payments card or the digital renminbi. So that's quite significant. And of course, it has advantages for Beijing and for Chinese leadership. The first of these is that a digital currency is completely immune to US sanctions. You can't really target a digital currency that well, the citizens of a given country are using on their mobile phones. So that's already pretty good for China. The other advantage is, of course, that it comes with surveillance capabilities. As I discussed in the book, it's very easy to track a digital currency. You can track all the transactions in real time. So, of course, China says that this is to do better economic statistics. Of course, <laughs> but it's probably there are maybe other motives, um, probably. And finally, it's also about China's internationalization of the renminbi because China is betting that in a few decades, maybe citizens from emerging countries will be very keen to settle exchanges using this digital renminbi. Instead of going to the bank, they would settle transactions with a tap on their mobile phone. So that's the three main innovations, not using the dollar, alternatives to SWIFT like SIPs and digital currencies that a growing number of countries, mainly led by China and Russia, are using to vaccinate their economies against U.S. sanctions. Okay. And, you know, the dollar has certainly still proved very strong over, especially over the course of this past year. Um, but as you said, China, and as is many things China is doing, is playing the long game. Um, because, you know, of course, in the early 80s, no one would have thought in, you know, 40 years, China would be anywhere near where it is now. So you can never, you, you know, you can never quite, you know, think that these things could never happen, right? Just simply because over the span of time, almost anything is possible. So moving on then from kind of also these these ways to basically sort of get around the firewall of sanctions and the firewall of the, of the supremacy of the U.S. dollar, is that reading your book, I was also really struck um, – you said, I don't know how clear you were, you were making the argument, but it seemed very clear to me in just reading it, just kind of the, the, the accumulation of, of the examples, is that increasingly, right, financial sanctions as a, as a regime globally 
is running up against the reality of resources and is running up against the reality of autarkic economies and is running up against the reality that certain countries, primarily, obviously for us in uh, Russia, is that they have oil and we everyone needs oil. And that's a problem because it's very difficult to sanction a country that has a resource that everyone wants. And China, right, increasingly has many resources, primarily, though, it's not so much um, maybe natural resources, but simply the resources of its manufacturing base and of its labor pool. And so from there, I want to then kind of draw us to kind of in the in the latter part of the interview, talk about that reality of finance versus hard resources and how that is impacting cases with Russia and China and then ultimately with the semiconductor sort of computer chip situation that is also really, you know, again, talk about timely. I mean, the recent round of, of with everything Biden, you know, refusing exports uh, of, of microchip semiconductor technology to China. I mean, it's all happening. But maybe we can try to focus on Russia first, because it does seem that, you know, Russia is under all kinds of sanctions, um, particularly from the 2014 annexations and then backing of the separatist rebels um, um, in Donbass and now with the, with the full invasion of Ukraine. But it seems that, you know, European countries need that oil and that's a problem. And so I'm wondering if we can talk about sort of how effective are sanctions really applied to Russia and like how far can sanctions actually go against Russia? Because, again, this goes into your point regarding relations between the United States and Europe is that European sovereignty, you know, the point will be European states will say, well, the U.S. can't tell us who we can and cannot import oil from. Right. They will say, you know, does the U.S. have a right to tell its European allies you can't get any fossil fuels from Russia at all? And of course, the case we're seeing with Germany and and the reality of many other European states is, well, that could cause very serious energy crises and very serious, you know, health crises with a lack of heating. Um, so, So before I ramble on further, I'm wondering if we can kind of talk about what is the limit you think of sanctions when they run up against the hard reality of necessary resources? So I think that you pose the question very well. I think one could write a PhD thesis about this topic, but I made notes while you were talking, and I think there are several angles to consider. The first one, very briefly, and I think you said it very well, I think that the U.S. sanctions policy is hitting a wall because of the fragmentation of the global financial, economic, technological landscape. What I mean here is that when the U.S. was the world superpower, uncontested, had the dollar, etc., etc., everything was okay. But these days, actually, the U.S. dollar is used just as much as the euro for international trade. And so obviously that will maybe make make U.S. sanctions a bit less effective. And then you have all these financial innovations that we have discussed. And what I say in the book is that none of them individually would be enough to dent the effectiveness of U.S. sanctions, but all of them taken together, they are a problem for the effectiveness of U.S. sanctions. And then if we go to your point about the global economy, and I, I hope that this is something that I convey in the book, Essentially, when you try to sanction a small economy like Cuba or North Korea, I mean, you can do it. You can isolate it financially, economically, from a trade perspective, technologically. Of course, there are ways to circumvent sanctions. There is smuggling networks. It's not perfect, but still, you know, it's pretty good. But when you tackle bigger cases like Iran and especially like Russia, 
I mean, which is the 11th largest economy in the world and such a big producer of energy, it is much trickier precisely because the countries that you want to be on the sanctions, but on the sanctions boat, so essentially the US and the EU together, well, in the case of Russia, the EU has been saying since the invasion of Ukraine, but wait, we cannot go for the nuclear superpower, super sanctions against Russian energy imports because we need that energy. And that's actually something that is a valid problem because the European Union would really shoot itself in the foot and provoke a very deep recession if it had done that this year. That being said, it's happened in the end, but it's Russia's decision. I mean, Russia has turned off the gas tab. It has even blown gas pipelines because Russia knows that energy is its only leverage in that war, especially against the EU. Um, and so far, there are no sanctions on oil exports from Russia to the European Union, but these measures are going to, well, come into place. But so far, there are no sanctions um, on the European Union's oil imports from Russia. But it's very, very hard to isolate such, such a big economy. And I think that you pose things here very well. There is no perfect magic recipe about how to do that. But I would say that in such cases, um, the best way to go is probably multilateral sanctions. So they're less stringent because essentially it's the lowest common denominator that will structure these sanctions. So the US will want to go big and go far and impose stringent sanctions. But in the case of Russia, the US doesn't really have anything to lose. It doesn't do any trade with Russia. It doesn't import energy from Russia, which is quite different from the EU. So multilateral sanctions are less powerful in theory, but at least you have everyone on board. And so that means they're harder to draft, but they are more effective in practice. And also these sanctions are less unpredictable, which in my view is very important because if you're a targeted country and you feel that sanctions are coming and going, as is the case arguably against Iran, you don't really have any incentive to alter your behavior in the way that the US wants you to do which is a problem, and we're seeing it with Iran. Iran doesn't really care about going back to the nuclear deal because it knows maybe in a few years, if a Republican president is elected in the US, maybe sanctions are going to go back. So making big concessions only for two years, is that in Iran's interest? Well, that's, that's up for debate. And finally, the final thing that I want to mention to answer your, your big mammoth question is that in my view, and that's what I try to discuss in the final part of the book, and I'm pretty sure this is what you want to discuss for a final quarter of this podcast, this all means that the golden age of US unilateral financial sanctions is over because of everything we have discussed. And in my view, the sanctions are tomorrow will target technology and especially semiconductors. And that's exactly what we're saying with the latest movements from the US to really restrict China's ability to get access to US semiconductor technology. And I'm sure that here you will have a question for me, so I won't say more. <laughs> yeah, no, that perfect sort of concluding um, 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 stage here. Because I think it's, yeah, this, this, this sort of this twisted logic of how globalization, which the US promotes for its business interests, undermines the capacity of sanctions to be effective um, because with globalization, technology is everywhere and, and intellectual property rights are everywhere and manufacturing is everywhere. And if the U.S. tries to do financial sanctions, it can kind of gum up the entire global economy in a way that ultimately is very bad for the U.S. But 
As of now, the one major leverage point that the U.S. has against China, as we've seen, is semiconductor manufacturing technology. And, and, you know, basically the entire sort of like intellectual property rights behind how to make them as well. Um, and I'm sure you can, we can go into this in more detail. But my understanding from your book is that um, obviously China as an upcoming power, particularly if it's trying to do digital currencies, it's trying to create a whole new currency, you know, union. It's trying to basically do its whole kind of, you know, global development program, particularly in Africa and Central Asia. What well, obviously needs electronic technology, it needs semiconductors to make that happen. And yet it itself does not quite have the technological base to make them on its own yet. Maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, 30, maybe it can, it can be autonomous in that production, but it's not there yet. But the U.S. is, of, you know, even with offshoring and everything, what it, one resource base of technology, it still retains a monopoly over is semiconductor production and semiconductor knowledge and technology, which of course, obviously a lot of that has to do with with exporting production to Taiwan and everything. But it really does seem that this leverage point, this is why the US is is really leaning on it right now against China, because it sort of seems to be the one thing that the US can really hold against China and say, this can hurt you, this can really break you. Um, And so I'm wondering maybe you can kind of maybe go into a bit more detail about how semiconductors became this flashpoint um, but then also this this question of like, yeah, technology and intellectual property, which is very different, I think, from the question of, of hard resources like fossil fuels in the case of Russia, because, you know, the U.S. is a major, you know, educational superpower. It is a major technological hub, Silicon Valley. And increasingly, you see calls in the U.S. for a kind of, I don't know how else to put it, but like a nationalism for American technology that... We shouldn't allow foreign students to American universities. We should, you know, prevent all export of intellectual property rights. Because in this sense, then, if America, you know, doesn't necessarily have, let's say, a resource monopoly anymore, at least it has a kind of like intellectual monopoly, so to speak. Um, So again, I'm asking a huge question here, but maybe if you can draw out some of these threads about how did semiconductors become such a major flashpoint? And what do you think is this future of sanctions and American power regarding American technology? So essentially, I think I should make a confession here. When I started writing the book and when I started pitching the book to my editor, I was expecting to focus solely on financial sanctions. But then while writing the book, so that was 2020 and 2021, during the height of the pandemic, I realized that something was happening in the field of semiconductors and in the field of export controls. And then I think that everything fits perfectly. Well, demise of US financial sanctions, but the US will need sanctions of tomorrow and it will probably be against semiconductors. So first, to answer your question, why semiconductors? Because essentially the US and China are competing for economic dominance. So it started as something that was dubbed a trade war under Trump, but it's not a trade war. It is a war for economic dominance between an incumbent superpower, that is the US, and a rising economic superpower, that is China. And China, well, there is a lot of debate about this, but China may well become the world's largest economy in a few decades. It's not sure, but it's highly possible. Um, And so you have this war for economic dominance that plays out in three spheres. The first sphere is obviously trade, 
well, the U.S. has done everything it could in that field, like tariffs, tariffs, tariffs. Then you have the financial sphere. So, of course, the U.S. is keen to make moves. But exactly as you said, it knows that if it were to target China with big financial sanctions, it would send the global economy into a deep recession that would be very, very harmful for the U.S. economy. And the third sphere for this war for economic dominance to play out is the tech sphere. And in the tech sphere, it's all about semiconductors. Semiconductors, so we are recording this podcast. There are tons of semiconductors in everything that we're using, in laptops, in mobile phones, in microphones, in webcams, in everything there is a semiconductor. And military gear is actually full of semiconductors too. So if you have the best semiconductors, you have a shot to be the best military power in the world. And so semiconductors have really become the crux of this battle between the US and China. It's a total battle. It's not about trade. It's really about economic dominance. And the US knows that it has a nace up its sleeve in this battle because US companies control the technology behind semiconductors. They have the know-how, they have the technology. So as you said, then semiconductors are manufactured, especially in South Korea and Taiwan, but the technology is American. And so the US had this other ha moment. So it's not about cutting financial times this time, but it's about cutting the access of Chinese companies to American technology in the field of semiconductors. And actually, it's not a new thing to do export controls. These date back to, well, the time of the Cold War, when the US was restricting the access of the Soviet Union to what was called dual-use technology, that is to say, technology that can be used for both civilian and military purposes. And so the US has literally resurrected these export controls and now applies them to China. And the idea is that with these export controls, the US wants to retain the leadership. It wants to remain at the top of the global league table for semiconductors technology. The idea is that China will struggle to catch up. China will catch up, but slowly at a time when the US will still continue to advance because this semiconductors race is a race to the smallest possible thing. And I actually mentioned in the book that the smallest semiconductors are smaller than the fraction of the breadth of an air. And I can say that my editor asked me to check this a number of times. So we had like family calculation sessions to make sure that it was all correct. It is correct. It's really a race to the smallest. If you have the smallest semiconductors, you're winning the race. And so the US bet here is to say, we have the technology and we will prevent China from accessing this technology. That being said, I'm sure that we will discuss it. It's all tied to the decoupling narrative, decoupling of the US and Chinese economies. But in my view, that's a dangerous trend. And also China has tools for retaliation, but I'll, I'll stop here because I'm sure you have follow-up questions. Yeah, no, I, 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 that's a great way to put it, including with semiconductors. And, and in many ways, I think, kind of what's great about your book is it's the first step really of historicizing is actually what is turning out to be a very unique and weird moment in U.S. sanctions policy of financial sanctions that really only had a heyday for about 25, 30 years. And now we're returning to an older Cold War logic of superpower confrontation and of export controls rather than of, of financial controls. And with that, I'm wondering you know, well, how long can America maintain its technological dominance <laughs> um, is, is, again, that's a live question. That's not, I don't know if anyone can actually answer that, right? But I think that's a very live question. And then as well, 
with China, it's then, you know, again, because they've always sort of been playing the long game seemingly, you know, how for them, well, okay, if they get set back 10 years, 15 years by these export controls of semiconductors, you know, so what? I mean, I know in the U.S. there's all this discourse and everyone's always, you know, saying China's going to invade Taiwan tomorrow. It's going to happen. And, you know, and especially now with semiconductors, it's like, well, of course they want to invade Taiwan because they want, you know, the semiconductor manufacturing technology. But it seems that, well, China could just wait this out, you know. I mean, they've got, they, they can just keep waiting out the U.S., um, and keep developing at a slower rate, but building this kind of inexorable logic. And so, where? And so, I'm wondering then, trying to kind of tie this all together, is I know that you conclude the book by saying that sanctions really kind of represent, or at least the way that sanctions operate now, are really symptomatic of American decline, and that America can no longer simply snap its fingers to banks and to the SWIFT system and expect this will solve all of its problems. And so in the face then of, you know, um, Russian aggression under Putin and then, you know, using kind of the, the, the blackmail of, of energy exports and of China really trying to do something different, which is China is really trying to create an alternative world order or a new system that will supplant the U.S. as the, as the U.S. declines. What then is the future for American sanctions policy, American diplomacy? What can the U.S. do? Um, Again, another huge question. (laughs) So there are tons of huge questions here. Um, So again, I was making notes while you were talking. I think that there are a few things here to consider. As you've said it very well, China is really playing the long game. So I think that you know, in the U.S., it's all about a U.S. presidential term, maybe two, so that's four years or eight years. China has strategies until the 2050s or even beyond. So it's completely different, a completely different perspective. And China is investing massively to catch up in the field of semiconductors. It's not clear whether it will manage to catch up with US technology, but at least it's making great strides in that direction. So I think that this is something that we need to keep um, in mind and China really is playing the long game. The second thing that I wanted to mention still in this China's area, I published a piece um, for foreign policy. It was actually an adapted excerpt from my book. And one of the main comments that I had, it was exactly about this question about decoupling and why it's dangerous. And a few people commented, but how about China's retaliation? And I wanted to tell them it's in the book. It wasn't in the excerpt. It's in the book. So I will say it here. China does have tools for retaliation. China really does have assets such as rare earths, for instance. China controls the majority of the known resources of rare rare earths. And you need rare earths to build missiles, to build submarines, to actually build these semiconductors. So China really has some leverage here. And we only need to ask Japan, well, Japan, because China did cut the access of Japanese companies to Chinese rare earths once. So it's it's up to do it. I mean, it, it won't shy from doing it. So I think that this is also something to keep in mind. And the other thing that I argue in the book is that this whole decoupling narrative is probably dangerous because when you decouple, it also means, I mean, a lot of people tend to see China as the great manufacturing uh, manufacturer of the world, the manufacturing power, the great factory of the world. But it's also a huge population. It's all, We also have to take into account the demand side 
And the Chinese market is 1.4 billion people who are early adopters of new technology and they want to consume. And so that would mean for American semiconductors firms, for instance, losing access to the Chinese market. That's not great news because it will slash their revenues and it will slash their ability to finance R&D expenses. And so they could gradually lose this war in the semiconductor field if that happens. And so probably to conclude, to answer your question, what I conclude in the book, and I wrote the conclusion, the conclusion after Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, on February 24th, 2022. In my view, the golden age of unilateral US financial sanctions is over. And there are two consequences. The first consequence is that the US will need to resort to multilateral sanctions in the future if it wants to continue imposing financial sanctions. These are far harder to draft, but they are far harder to circumvent. And you have all allies on board. And even China wouldn't be able to afford losing access and losing economic ties to both the US and the EU at the same time. Even for China, that would be too big. So I think that multilateral sanctions are the sanctions of the future. But that means collaboration between the US and the EU. We've seen quite a lot of collaboration since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the backdrop on sanctions and the history of transatlantic unity on sanctions isn't that good if we take a look at the bigger picture. So I think that this will require efforts on both sides, probably, to collaborate together. And the second thing is that the sanctions of tomorrow are probably going to be these export controls, this resurrection of export controls, as I put it a few minutes ago, because the battles of tomorrow will be fought in the technology sector because of the digitalization of tomorrow's economies, because, well, weapons, they carry semiconductors. And so the battles of tomorrow will be waged in the tech war. And finally, something that I mentioned in the book is that, in my view, the key question will be in this fragmented economic, financial, and technological landscape, where will emerging countries side? And that's the key question, because we know where the US and the EU will be and other Western powers. We know where China will be, but we do not yet know where countries in Latin America, in Africa, and the rest of Asia will be. We, don't know, we do not know who they will side for. And essentially, they will be up for grabs at a time when Western influence in emerging economies, especially in Africa for European powers, is declining. And in my view, that's a dangerous trend. China and Russia are very keen to win market shares. I use here in economic terms, but it's it's not about doing more trade. It's about winning hearts and minds and being present on the ground. And so the key question will be what happens in the developing world and who these countries are siding for. And that's an open question, of course. Great. Well, I think then the key lesson I'm getting from this and from your conclusion is that we are returning to an older world order, or an older dynamic of great power competition that is increasingly, and everyone's always talking about the new Cold War, but it really does seem applicable that we're in this new period of superpower confrontation. Um, and so it's sort of return to, to the, the latter half of the 20th century um, in the first half of the 21st. Well, um, just to our listeners, again, I cannot recommend this book enough. It is Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against U.S. Interests. I think it's perhaps the timeliest book that's come out in the past year. If you want to have a one-stop read for a primer on sanctions history, on great power competition, um, getting up to speed on, on the situation with Russia and, and its energy exports, on semiconductors and, and the export and kind of trade war that's going on um, between the U.S. and China, it is the book to read. 
Um, and so I'll conclude it there. Uh, Agatha, this was a great interview. Um, just before where I sort of end things, do you have anything you want to promote? Anything you want to plug? Are you working on a new book? Um, or are you sort of totally exhausted from, from this one? <laughs> I think that my family will go on strike if I'm working on a new book. Um, no, I'm trying to promote the book and the main ideas from the book by writing as many pieces and notepads as possible. Um, so you can find some of these in Politico, um, in Foreign Policy, in the Journal of Democracy and, and many other outlets. But if you read the book, that would be fantastic. And I love talking. I love debating. I'm French. We love debates. We love disagreements. So if anyone reads the book and disagrees or agrees or has strong views, please do not hesitate to get in touch. I'm, I'm on social media. I'm, I'm easy to find on the internet. You can find my email on my personal website. So please do not hesitate to get in touch and I'll be very, very happy to talk. And I reply to every single email and message. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm impressed. Um, well, this has been a great interview, Agatha. Thank you so much. Um, and to our listeners, please read the book, buy it. It's a good, uh, you will not be disappointed. Um, and Agatha, I will be very uh, curiously following your career and hopefully, you know, this, your family doesn't go on strike too long because I would love to read another, another book that you read. Um, so thank you so much. Um, um, and to our listeners, uh, thank you for listening. Um, thank you. Bye.